Let's go to our Bibles in 2 Timothy chapter 1. We're going to begin in verse 3. Out of 2 Timothy chapter 1, we are in the second week of our series on fearless dealing with fear. Uh, this week we're going to cover fear of the unknown, fear of what is going to happen, fear of the future. Next week we're going to cover a very, very practical subject on the fear of failure. Just as a precursor for next week, have you ever been to that point and that place in your life to where you have desired to do something great and you tried it and it went over like a lead balloon? We're not going to ask for a show of hands or point out who that was or which groups, but often in our lives we have things happen and they don't go as they, we plan and then we're afraid to do what God desires us to do in the future. But as you're turning there to the book of 2 Timothy, I do need to ask a question. Do we have any history buffs in the house this morning? All seven of you. Great. All right. Okay. Hey, there we go, Josh. History buffs. I was reading a book several years ago, and it was called The Conquest of Gaul, modern-day France, by a man known as Julius Caesar. Now, some of you may remember when you were required to read that in school, but he's telling about how he took his Roman legions from Italy and went into what was basically a barbarous, hostile country filled with people that we would consider savages. And he made a statement that I never forgot, and I even wrote it down in the notes. I want to start off with this. Julius Caesar, now can you imagine yourself going into modern-day France, but it was over 2,000 years ago. As you're going through those dark mountain passes and as the snow begins to fall, you see fleeting figures running through the woods. Then you know there's something called an ambush about to happen and you've done all that you can do to prepare yourself. Then you hear the only thing that could be akin with an American culture is the rebel yell. And you hear shrieks, you hear screaming, you hear maniacal people, and all of a sudden the hills become alive, and from every direction you are hit with absolute fury against you because you are the invader. And Julius Caesar wrote down this statement, and he said, it is almost always the invisible dangers that are most terrifying. Now think about that. It is most always the invisible dangers that are most terrifying. But Julius Caesar had Roman legions. He had Roman centurions. He had Roman cavalry. He had men with bows. He had supply trains. They had armor. But if we could translate that situation to maybe around a hundred years after he lived, and we could kind of, if you've ever got on the internet or used what's called the Google, and you've gotten on Google Earth, you can put in your address. And it starts out where you're looking at the whole Earth. Have you, have you been there from kind of like you're out in space? And all of a sudden it turns around to that specific place on the planet. And it's like you are an astronaut that is jetted down to Earth and you come all the way from out there to where you live. If we could extract ourselves from that situation that Caesar was in, we would not be in Gaul, but we would be in the heart of the Roman Empire. Rome itself. And we wouldn't be there in the halls of the kings and the emperors. We would be in a place called 
a dungeon. And if we could go through the dark, smelly corridors of that dungeon, we would find a small cell with this old man named Paul. And we would find him, if we could look and we could see this small gleam of light coming through this small window, we would notice that he's writing something. This man has been forsaken by many people. The only person that he had to attend to him was his friend Luke, the doctor who God used to write parts of the Bible. And he's there, and the one who's in control of the Roman Empire is not Caesar, not a courageous conqueror, but a maniacal madman named Nero. You remember Nero from history? The guy who was absolutely crazy. And you're like, Jeff, you have not met my mom. He is more crazy than your mom. Some historians think because the Romans liked to flavor their drinks with lead and because they drank out of lead and goblets, that could have had something to do with the insanity. But it got to be to the point that it was so bad that Nero had been going to just kill people and he had imprisoned the Apostle Paul. There were no lawyers. There was no Bill of Rights. No Constitution. No Navy SEALs to come get you out. There was no United States of America. There was no Britain. There was no modern day France with laws. It was an old man who had been saved by Jesus Christ and who had fought the good fight and was about to finish the race. And he's there in the fourth period of his life, sitting alone in a jail cell. And the Holy Spirit inspires him to write this, and this is amazing, to a young man named Timothy. Paul knows he's about to die, and here's what he writes. Verse 1 of 2 Timothy chapter 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God whom I served, serve as did my ancestors with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. I remember, as I remember your tears, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. Stop right here for a moment. Timothy was a man who had a godly, godly Jewish mother and a grandmother, but his father was a Greek. For the Jews, this was as bad as it could get. Because not only was he not a Jew ethnically, but he was a pagan religiously. So here is Paul writing to a person who is biracial, that was often rejected by the Jews. But the gospel of Jesus Christ transcends ethnicity. Amen? The true family of God is not something that is bound together by blood, but is bound together by faith. And notice how Paul continues in verse 6. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus. I love this. 
who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher and apostle and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. But do, but I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced, or I am persuaded, that He is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Wow. The driving thought of this message is simply the fact that the knowledge of a future reality should influence our decisions here today. I know so many people today, when they look at this, they say, but Jeff, that was the Apostle Paul. He, he knew Jesus in an intimate way. Do you realize that Jesus has revealed Himself to all who desire to have a relationship with Jesus? So often we get filled with fear of the future. What we're trying to impress and trying to drive home today is just what the Apostle Paul was teaching 2,000 years or so ago is real today. And that's that some of you may be afraid of the financial future. Have you all noticed the economy is not the best it's ever been? Have you, all, have you all got that? You're a college student, right? Oh, yeah. Got that memo? There are people in here who have physical issues. Say, Lord, I don't know if I'm going to continue to be able to have enough health to even go to church. If we kind of opened up the hearts here today, there, there would be some of us who would say, I have relational strain in my life. I have broken relationships. My children don't care about God. My parents don't care about God. It seems like I don't know what's going to happen in the future. And it's sometimes when we look around and we see these things, we begin to fear what's going to happen to us. The Bible here, the key is in verse number 12. Notice what he says. He is in prison. Are we all tracking with that? He's not on a Christian cruise. He's in prison and he says... Which is why I suffer as I do. Meaning I have not backed down, so they have not backed down their persecution. But notice he says, but I am not ashamed. Amen? Not ashamed of it. And I am convinced or I am persuaded that he, Jesus, is able to guard. Is able to protect until that capital D, that day, that has been entrusted to me. You know what he's saying? is that I know, but please hear this, because I know that Jesus has saved me, because I know that He has a place reserved for me in heaven, because He has saved me from hell. Amen? Former lost folks in here today. It, the fact that I have been lost, that I have been on my way to hell, but Jesus, as the old Bill Gaither song for our Southern Gospel fans says, He touched me. Because of what He did, I know that in the end, Whenever I die, whether it's when I'm young, old, from cancer, a car wreck, I know that on that day, what I have entrusted to Him and what He has entrusted to me will be brought together and I will be with Him for all eternity. So the fact, so the fact that Jesus Christ has reserved a place in heaven, has rescued us from hell if we've been born again, should give us confidence that we don't know what the next day is going to bring forth, right? Isn't that what Jesus said? I mean, sometimes you you call, you know, you see these people on on TV, and I just really can't take it serious. I know some people are serious about it, but but the whole um, uh, fortune-telling business. I don't think it would be very pastoral to advocate prank calls. 
but I still have a sin nature. Y'all with me this morning? And I'm not telling you to do it. And by the way, I would say, and I am serious, 100%, do not dabble in the occult. Witchcraft, things of that nature, fortune telling, because you expose yourself to demonic influence. Stay away from it. But if you've ever gone to one of those places or talked to one of those people, they will give you such nebulous, such, such wide, like how could you ever get that wrong, future predictions. You will meet someone important in your life and the near future. If you're married and you go home, you had better meet someone important. It's like, well, hello, scholar. I mean, and sometimes people are like, whoa. Pastor, I I went in and they said, stick out your hand. And they looked down in my hand. And remember when I was working on that lawnmower five years ago and I got cut when I pulled the the, the string, the pull string and it broke? Well, there was that scar. They told me it wasn't really a scar, but it was I was going to meet someone important in the future. And then I went to school and I met the principal. Wow. I mean, I just gotta be like, if you fall for stuff like that, bro, you got bigger issues, amen? Like bigger issues than the basic stuff. So what we're saying here is that even Jesus told us back in the Sermon on the Mount that, you know, none of us, we don't know what the day is going to bring forth, right? We just don't. We get up in the morning, we say, here's my to-do list, but we don't know if we're ever going to be able to do it. And the people who sadly are deluded in the fact that they know more about the future than God. People who put signs up on 220 and say, Jesus Christ is coming back on this day. Look, you don't have to be the sharpest knife in the drawer, but you can look at the Bible and Jesus says, no man knows the day or the hour. You should not be stressed about when people say, it's all going to end on this date. You'll probably be assured that it won't end on that date, right? Because God doesn't want to give them the satisfaction. How would that be in heaven? God, you know, everybody's like, well, so-and-so called it, you know, and, you know, that just would not work. So what we're saying here is that we don't know the future. We can plan for the future. We can organize our lives to try to be productive with it. But ultimately, that's where faith comes in. And here's how it works. The Apostle Paul, once again, in prison, about to be killed waiting for that Roman leader, the centurion, Roman officer, to walk down the halls of that prison and say, come with us. And he would be led out. And because he was a Roman citizen, he would not be crucified, but under the law, he would be beheaded. He's waiting on that. And yet he says, but I am not ashamed of where I am. I am not ashamed of what I have believed. And I am not ashamed of Jesus Christ because I believe that He is able to keep me until the day that I see Him. But in America, that's too simple for us, right? I mean, like seriously, let's just be very very real this morning. When I read that, you're like, yeah, it's not ashamed of the gospel, right? It's in the Bible, so the Bible wouldn't be ashamed of the gospel. It's persuaded, okay. That's there, but I'm here. There's going to be a point in your life that you're going to have to come to the place to where you either become stressed out, you either become a bother, an annoying person to your family. Have you ever been around a worrier? I'm talking all of this worry from time to time, but a person who is possessed like by the spirit of what if. You're not going to be able to enjoy life. You're going to stress out your family. And we looked at a, at a sermon several weeks ago from Philippians chapter 4 about some of us are just wired different. Amen? Right? 
Like there's some of us, in, and we have to try really hard to be responsible at all. And there's some, and they, like by the time they're three years old, they're like putting on their suit on Sunday morning and, you know, making sure that the dog is fed. And you're like, what are you? You know, the parents are looking at There's some people that are more wired to be responsible. But it comes to the point where all of us are going to, at one time or another, have this fear of the unknown. I encourage you to grab a hold of this text of Scripture, not Pastor Jeff's sermon. Have we made that distinction? Sometimes people are very encouraging about, about the message and, you know, sometimes people, people lie, which I, I don't even know if I should stand out sometimes. I, a former church I was at, there was this lady and she would come by uh, on Sunday morning. She said, better than Billy Graham. And then she'd leave. And I'm like, Lord, we need to pray for that lady because she has a problem of lying. You know what I'm talking about? Right, like one of those things. We want to, we want to d- d- dissect ourselves from, from what Jeff says unless what Jeff says comes from here. Amen? Right? Like, this is the authority. So what I'm encouraging you to do today is to dive into this text and extract the meaning that God has for you, which is to not worry about the future. Now, notice how Paul begins this there in verse number 6. He talks about uh, fanning the flame of the gift of God. If you're taking notes, uh, this is probably our annual alliterated sermon. Normally, we don't give alliteration for the points in the sermon, but it just all fell together. So we're having a very southern, a very... Are, so we've got revive, refuse, run, and remain. Let me give them to you very quick. Y'all all right? Okay, here we go. What we're going to do, how to conquer fear through faith in Christ, fear of the un- unknown, is number one, you revive your spiritual gift by actually using it. Some people, they come to the place and they say, Jeff, I feel like God is absent. And we're going to go to verse 6 and 7. But notice what Paul says. He's saying, what I want you to do is fan the flame that the, of the gift of, that God gave to you. And here's one of the ways that you alleviate worry and fear of the unknown. You begin to serve Christ. Now, if you just come and you sit and soak and sit and soak and never give, never serve. There's going to be a point to where you're going to have enough and it's going to turn from God. Would you minister to me today to, well, let me see what I can criticize about my Sunday school class, preaching, music, etc. We okay in Rocky Mount Baptist Church this morning? God has created us to serve. And some of the most joy-filled people have done that. And when he says, fan the flame of the gift of God, some of you that are so joy-filled, you come and say, man, Jeff, I've got this friend who's been sick. And we went and saw him. Jesus said to do that. I've got this lost person that I know, and I went and shared the gospel with them. That's what Jesus said to do. There's this person in my life that's really far from God, and I'm praying for them. That's what Jesus said to do. And when you begin to give out and fan up that desire to serve Christ and serve people, all of a sudden, your life, your attitude will change. Notice what he says to notice in verse 6 to to fan the flame of the gift of God, but also in verse 7, this spirit is not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. The word here in the original language for fear is literally the word for cowardice. For cowardice. There should never be a Christian that is a coward. Amen, church? The world wants us to be politically correct. Have you noticed? So that's fine if you're a Christian, but that's your own personal religious belief. And as long as you keep that personal and hidden, we don't really have any problem with it. 
But the second that you begin to do things such as pray in Jesus' name, y'all know where this is going, right? As long as you begin to, to, to tell other people that Jesus Christ is the only way to heaven, you all of a sudden become intolerant. And I just want to stop right here and recognize uh, Mr. Ronnie, Mr. Ronnie Thompson, who is on our Franklin County Board of Supervisors, holding strong um, to continue to honor the Lord um, with the debate that has been going on, with the, with the, I guess we could say, the push to remove prayer. I would just say ban it from Franklin County, but he says, as long as God gives me the strength, I will not back down. So let's just give the Lord um, and Him our appreciation today. We need to pray for him because that's not a popular thing in today's world. But for Brother Ronnie, for us, the Bible says, not Jeff, the Bible says in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7, that the spirit that God has given us is not of fear. Now let's stop right here because some people think, okay, well, if I'm not supposed to be fearful, then that means I'm supposed to be kind of almost like that arrogant Christian. Have you ever known an arrogant Christian? It's kind of like an oxymoron. Like when you talk to them, it's kind of like you, you don't feel the love, but you kind of feel, like if you've ever been, and I hope that it never comes across this way, because I can get fired up. Have y'all noticed that? But because I believe this stuff, alright? I believe it's real. And here's the thing. There's 168 hours in a week. Our math I count it up. If I get it wrong, you go, you know, it's 168 in a week, and I've got 30 to 40 minutes, or 50, or, or 55, or whatever, and it's gone longer sometimes. I've got a small window of time to plead and to beg with you to reject what the world tells you about yourself and about life. And so, often we say, well, we don't want to give off the impression when we're courageous for the Lord that we're like lions and we just blow everybody away. What it means is that in meekness and humility and love, we tell those who do not believe in Christ, we will not back down from the gospel. Jesus has saved me. He loves me. He's not a part of my life. He is my life. And He desires to save you. And I love you as a person because I love you. I will tell you the truth. That's courage. Courage is not arrogance. It is not pride. Courage is saying that I believe in Christ. Notice what he also says it's of power. In the Greek New Testament, it, power literally means ability. It doesn't necessarily mean some big dynamic explosion, but it means the ability. Notice of power and love and self-control. You can translate this phrase self-control uh, like sound reasoning. Now, here's where it gets interesting because the world says it does not make sense to tithe, for example. It doesn't make sense to tithe. If you're trying to get out of debt, you try to keep everything that you can. And then you, uh, once you get out of debt, then you start giving. But God says that the way that you get out of debt is you give. Remember, Jesus says another one. A cross-cultural, counter-cultural uh, example. And what is it? Luke chapter 9, Jesus says, if you save your life, you lose it. But if you lose your life for my sake in the gospel, you find it. You see, the gospel says the way to be free is not to take revenge, but give revenge to God because vengeance is His. The gospel says the way that you get back at a person is not by trying to take revenge, but by forgiving them. 
So we've got this small amount, this window of time for us to look in the Bible and let it change our lives. I just want to let you know I appreciate this church and I love this church. And the reason why I get fired up because it's life and death. I know a lot of you take care of yourselves. I've known many people in Franklin County that are up into their 90s. But I don't know if I'll see you next Sunday. We're all on the same page. Paul didn't know when it would come for him. I don't know when it's going to come for me. I don't know when it's going to come for you. This could be your last chance to repent of your sin and give Jesus your life. And often you say, well, Jeff, if, I, if you give that invitation, that weird Baptist thing that y'all do at the end, like everybody stands up with a hymn book and you begin to sing a song and you call people to come down in front. Dude, that's just weird. I, I don't want to do that. I, I'm a, I don't like crowds or, or whatever it is. But, you know, you don't have to walk down this aisle to be saved. But one thing that I truly believe is that if you are truly wanting to follow Christ, you're going to want to represent Him however you can. Even if that means that it's scary, even if it means it's awkward and embarrassing, it means that you're ready to live for Jesus. You ever seen that movie High Plains Drifter? Clint Eastwood? Seen that, Joseph? It's a crazy movie, right? Like he goes into the town and he just takes over. And in the movie, there was a lady who, who said to Clint Eastwood, the man with no name, she said, you're the kind of man who makes people afraid. Here's what Eastwood said. It's what people know about themselves on the inside that makes them afraid. But with Jesus on the inside, we have no need to be afraid. You don't need to fear the future. So first off, we need to, in order to conquer the fear of the future, revive the gift that God has given us, plug in and serve. Secondly, refuse to be ashamed of the gospel. Look at verse 8 and verse 12 with me. Paul says in both of those places, don't be ashamed of the testimony. Don't be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, what kind of suffering do you think that Paul had endured at this point? Well, just a few. He had been flogged, right? He had been imprisoned. He had been shipwrecked. Now, stop right there. Shipwreck would probably be one of the scariest things because you're on a ship, and for some people that are afraid of close quarters, they're claustrophobic, you're in a ship. And you're not on a modern battleship, you are in an old-school Roman grain transport trip with a guard. The ship goes down in a storm. Not only does it go down in a storm, the ship is broken up by the storm, and Paul has to hang on to a piece of driftwood. Then he gets drifted to this island. Now, right there, by the way, I just have to, to think that the, the Apostle Paul here in prison has to think back over his life, and when he writes things like this, I am not ashamed of the gospel. He's got to chuckle a little bit, right? Like where he has been, where God is bringing him to. Then when he got shipwrecked, he went to this island and he's there picking up firewood to help with the fire and he gets bit on the hand by a snake. Now if that had been you and I, we would have said, Lord, I'm trying to serve you. I'm trying to take care of you. I'm trying to, to spread the gospel. But God supernaturally healed him from that snake bite. So here is the Apostle Paul who has suffered for the gospel because he never backed down. And here's a very convicting question that this text presents to all of us. How much have we suffered for the gospel? 
Now, we're here in the United States of America. We're in the South. A lot of people go to different churches. There's churches to go to. Probably not too often that people really, really, really persecute you, beat you up for going to church. Now, maybe it it happens, but I haven't known that many places to where, like, you walk out of church and you've got a group of guys and they say, okay, let's, let's pick out somebody who went to church to beat up. You know, you're in the ER and they say, what happened? You're like, man, I went to church and they beat me up. It's just probably not happened all that often. But if we could translate this into Paul's world, he was persecuted. The gospel was trying to be stamped out by not only the Jews, but by the Romans as well. And notice in verses, verse 9, he, he begins to talk about what God has done for him. He, he says, God is the one who has saved us and called us to a holy calling. Not because of our works, but because of His own purpose and grace, which He gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. And verse 10 gets even better. He says, For which I was appointed a preacher and apostle and teacher. Which is why I suffer as I do. God has a calling for every single one of us. And here's the way it breaks down most often. We have those family members and those friends who we know need to be brought to saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Maybe it's to that point you say, Jeff, I have invited them to church. I have tried to share the gospel, but it seems like they don't want to listen. Don't give up. I've told y'all before that my dad was repeatedly hounded by a deacon from the church who would come and knock on the door of the house. And my dad would actually crawl out of the room because you could see a small house. You could see through into the living room. Like he would get on like soldier crawl around the couch so that he wouldn't even have to come to the door to face the deacon who was concerned about my dad's soul. Some people you say, now Jeff, we know that your dad is a preacher and we know that you're a preacher. So, you know, you're you're from one of those families. We didn't have that many problems and, you know, like alcoholism and, and, you know, so forth and so on. If you could go back one generation before the Lord invaded the Robinson family line, you would find in Oklahoma, some people who have culture call it Durant, Oklahoma. If you're from there, you call it Durant. You would find bootleggers. You would find men who are addicted to alcohol. You would find people who had um, had all sorts, and I could go into uh, family problems. My dad has, has said before that he grew up hearing his mom, my granny, and my grandpa screaming, fighting after he had gone to bed, threatening divorce, and how he was just terrified at the fact that his parents may actually get divorced. But because of a deacon who was annoying. Be annoying. The reason why I say that is because if you continue and you continue and you continue and you continue to call, to pester them. I'm not talking about being, uh, being uh, an unspiritual type of jerk aggravation. We all clear on, on the dividing line, but I'm saying don't quit because you're not going to scare them to hell number two. Can't push him further away from God. Because sometimes we, we make excuses for ourselves. Because of an annoying deacon who would not quit and a man at my dad's work who invited him to play church softball. There was like this crooked Baptist church ball racket. It was so crooked because in order to play, you had to come to church. Right? 
It's like the Baptist softball version of the mob. If you're one of us, you've got to pay the dues. So you had to come at least on Sunday morning or Sunday night and get preached at. Okay? So he came and he got preached at. And then on the Sunday night, he got saved. Then my granny got saved. Then my grandpa got saved. By the time my grandpa died, and his nickname, I think I've told you this before. You know what my granddaddy's nickname was? Hot Toddy. That's a little hint. He ended up being an usher at church. My granny was saved. My dad's two brothers are saved. And they've raised their children to follow Jesus Christ. And all of them are involved in churches in the DFW area because someone wouldn't quit. The Apostle Paul is saying, do not quit. Let me give you a quote from Spurgeon, Charles Spurgeon, the Prince of Preachers, that I pray will inspire you to not quit with your friends. He says, and I quote, The saving of souls. If a man has once gained love to perishing sinners and to his blessed Master, will be an all-absorbing passion to him. Notice he said, if we have once gained love to perishing sinners on their way to hell, and also to our blessed Master, the saving of souls will become an all-consuming passion. You are normal. You are a normal Christian if you are concerned about people going to hell. And notice how Paul says, through all of that, through all of that I have not been ashamed. And through all of that, I I love that text um, to where it speaks about Jesus Christ has abolished the fear of death. There in verse number 10, look at it with me. Verse number 10, and our Savior Christ Jesus who abolished death, meaning abolished the fear of death. He destroyed it and brought life and immortality to light through the Gospel. Oh, I hope I can plead with you this morning. Some of you may be thinking, man, Jeff, I'm just visiting or I'm new to this church thing. I may have to give up so many things in my life if I become a follower of Jesus Christ. Let me be very clear. When you become a follower of Jesus Christ, it doesn't mean you sleep in a suit. Doesn't mean that you, that, that you listen to a certain style of Christian music. What it means is that God has changed your mindset and the things that you used to think this is what it's all about. It's all about getting all the money I can or, or going out and partying and, and trying to get whatever I can get on the weekends. That is death. That, that's an STD-ridden world. That, that, that's a world that is riddled with the bullet holes of financial collapse. That is a world that is full of nothing but heartache. It is a lie what MTV tells, tells students today. It is. That is death, but Jesus says, I came to give you life. What Jesus is saying here through this text is that the life of Jesus, the love of Jesus, brought to light. It's kind of like nobody really knew how to live especially in the pagan world. But when Jesus came, He shone light on it and He said, this is true life. It is true life to repent and get rid of your sin. Because the sin is what makes us miserable anyway, doesn't it? You know, some people say, well, just, just swallow your pride. Swallow your pride and walk down the aisle. No, no, don't swallow it. Don't swallow the poison. Spit it out, Amen. Just spit it out. Spit out the garbage. And say, Jesus, I need you to change my soul. Change my heart. And He will cleanse you of all of your sin. And He will give you a peace that surpasses all understanding. And then we come to that final 
driving thought there in verse number 12 about how Paul is persuaded. Imagine if someone came to you and they said, you know what, we've got a brand new piece of property that has been bought and we want to give it to someone. And it's not a piece of property that's in a concrete jungle somewhere. It's a perfect plateau in this beautiful, lush valley in the country of New Zealand. And we want to give it to you. You can go live there. You will have free travel to there if you want to just use it for a vacation spot. Anybody? Would you mind that? Maybe once every year or two, just go over to New Zealand and have a free vacation. All right? One of the most beautiful places in the world. In fact, Lord of the Rings was filmed there. He said, but the only catch is we, we've got a, a 12-foot bass boat. And, and in order to get there, what you're going to need to do is travel to Virginia Beach. And we'll have this bass boat for you. And, and what we're going to have you to do, and we've got just enough gas for you to be able to get there. You're like, that enough gas won't even fit on a bass boat. They're like, well, don't worry about it, okay? And we need you to just get on that bass boat and we'll give you a, a Boy Scout compass and you'll try to find your way to New Zealand. But if you deviate one little direction, if you go on one turnaround, you'll probably run out of gas and you will die on a boat in the middle of the ocean. Are you interested? And you're like, I don't know what you've been smoking, but I don't want any of it. Amen? That's just plain crazy. But let's change it around a little bit. If someone came to you and they gave you that same offer, but they said, the United States Nimitz aircraft carrier, a beast upon a beast of an aircraft carrier, is going to port in New Zealand. We have bought you property there. You will have free access to do anything you want. You will not be taxed by the New Zealand government. It has ponds. It has rivers. It is an absolute paradise on earth. And we want to give it to you. And the Nimitz is going there and they want you to be their special guest on the ship. There are over 5,000 sailors ready to rain down a beating on anyone who needs it. There, is, there are battleships that are the escorts. It is filled with planes. It has nuclear submarines underneath to provide support. And you will be the personal guest of the captain of the great aircraft carrier. And you will be treated like royalty and you will be given a free gift. A beautiful place to use however you wish. How many of you would rather the second option in which everything the defense was provided for you, as opposed to the first option to where if you messed up, you would die. You know what a lot of people today believe? They believe that the gospel is that first option. That Jesus comes to us and says, you know what, I've got this beautiful place. I've got this great life for you. I've got heaven for you. But I want you to get on that little 12-foot bass boat and go up on the open seas and hook around the continents. I want you to make sure that you do enough and you're good enough. Because if you're not good enough, if you run out of your own gas, if you run out of your own goodness, you're just going to be stranded. I'm going to say, well, angels, that's what I thought. That person there didn't have what it takes. So I'm just going to let them get what they deserve. The gospel is the fact that Jesus Christ has purchased a place called heaven. He has purchased a life that is to be envied by every lost person here. He has purchased life. He has purchased forgiveness. He has purchased a life that is filled with purpose. He has purchased a life for you and me so we can be free of those chains of unforgiveness and bitterness. 
And He offers you a ride upon, uh, we could say, the battleship or the aircraft carrier of His love and His grace. And what you must do is extend your hand and say, Jesus, I believe that You can get me where I can't get myself. That's the faith that the Bible is calling us to give when it comes to the point to where we fear the unknown. If we could turn to the end of this book, we would find, and I'll let you go read this on your way home, or don't read it while you're driving. You may have a wreck, but once you get home, you can read it. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 6-8, through 8, where Paul says in verse number 7, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. And Pastor Jerry Vines, I've never heard it put this way before. He says that when Paul finished writing this, we don't know how long it was, but there was a Roman guard that came down his hallway. The door opened up, come with us. And they took the Apostle Paul and they laid his head on a chopping block and he was executed. And he said he could only imagine Nero and those Roman leaders saying, look at that old fool who actually believed that that Jewish carpenter rose from the dead. He just bit the dust. Jerry Vine says, no, he didn't just bite the dust. He just broke the tape. He says, I have finished the race. 